Heavenly Father, thankful for your word and just this reminder that our chief joy and identity is in you. Lord, guard our hearts and minds from the things of the world, and the ideas and the deception that is out there. May we always be grounded in truth. May we always make our stand in truth, Lord. Because, Lord, you are truth. The church is the pillar of truth. May we be people that live and teach truth to those around us. Be with us this evening. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, just the way to, by way of introduction, uh, I mentioned last week, or was it last week, two weeks ago, uh, that we're going to do this little mini-series mini through, the, through the month of June. And the reason why I want to do it is because um, there are just a lot of things that I've been thinking about the last year. Um, and as things are slowly opening up, uh, this is really for us to be equipped to have a biblical worldview. I know a lot of things have been challenging this year, uh, and there's, I, I think, nothing more challenging than, than figuring out how to apply truth in our life. Because there's so many opinions, there's so many different um, just ideas that's floating around, and I want to try to ground us biblically. That as Christians, we must always think in truth. That the thing that saturates our mind is God's word, and that's how we're supposed to live our life. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that is, I guess, relevant, not intentionally, but it is just because of the circumstance we're in. And it's this idea of intersectionality. And you guys probably have heard it in the news of last year, probably have seen it in, on blog posts or whatever, but I want to talk about this particular subject because I want to show and expose how dangerous this is to the church. Um, the last year, um, particularly after all the civil unrest, there's just been Christians that are buying into this idea of, of intersectionality. And this is tied into the things like Marxism and critical theory or critical race theory. And all of these things may seem good on the surface until we start to understand how this actually is dangerous to the church. Now, just by way for just understand what, what do these terms even mean and how does it impact your society, when I say Marxism, this is a worldview that believes that the world is divided into two types of classes, those that are oppressors and those that are, oppressed, or that are being oppressed. And that means that eventually the Marxist view is that the, the people that are being oppressed will eventually overthrow those that are in, the, that are in authority. And that bleeds into eventually, as time progresses, into critical theory. And obviously Marxism failed because that's you know, what was going on back in the day and it didn't work. But then you get into this thing called critical theory. And that's a similar idea in that the world is divided, again, between those that are oppressor and then those that are oppressed. But critical race theory goes one step further in that the world is divided into those that are of a particular ethnicity that has dominion over another ethnicity. Um, and the question is, how does intersectionality play into this? Intersectionality is really the tool to which people can discern if they are being oppressed or not. Are they the, the, the ones that are oppressing others or are they ones being oppressed? And it seems like it is very arbitrary. Um, I mean, because they have to have some sort of standard. Who is the one that are oppressed or who are the ones that are being oppressed? And oftentimes, it'll, especially in the Western culture, if you're a white male, then you're naturally a oppressor. And if you are a white woman, then you're not as oppressive because you're a woman, but you're kind of oppressing others because of your ethnicity. 
And it goes, and they just add more and more to those things. Like, oh, where are you at in terms of your social status or your economic status? And then your ethnicity and your nationality and your parents and all of these different things. And usually how this works is that they give credit to those that are under the oppressive class. That's the world that we live in right now. You know, if you're a Asian female that have transgender parents, then you are superly, you're, you're very oppressed because the oppressive class has made life so much harder for you, and therefore you need to go and fight back. And it's dangerous because, yes, that's how the world thinks, but that's slowly creeping into the church. The ideas of the world has wormed itself way into the church to the point where even pastors are for this. In the last year, I've, I've never seen so much of a divide between this social justice issue. And that's really the, the aim, right? People think that, okay, well, we want equality. We want to break that barrier so that everyone will be equal. And this is all under the name of social justice. And I think there, this is a, a very dangerous game that the church is playing with. Because there's just always going to be things that they think, oh, I'm oppressed, I'm, the, I'm more oppressed because of all these different things. Or, and in the end, the, the, the problem with this view is that the focus is not on Jesus Christ anymore. The church bought into the world's idea, and there is no focus on Jesus Christ. As I said, I did not plan this, but it just so happens that in the next few days, the Southern Baptist Convention are actually going to convene, I think, next week, and they're going to vote for the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And within the candidate, there's some super liberal individuals and some super conservative. And it's gone so big, because the Southern Baptist, denomination, Southern Baptist Convention is the biggest denomination in America, that even secular media are noticing it. They're saying that, okay, whoever the next president is, is either going to be for certain worldviews, which is mainly the LGBTQ or social justice things, or they're going to be backwards in history, and we need to cancel the whole denomination altogether. It's going to be very fascinating to see, because it's going to happen in a few days. And as a Christian, and we're not associated with them, so whatever they do is not going to happen to us, and not going to impact us, but it's just very fascinating to watch. Because the culture, if let's say they choose a very liberal type president in the Southern Baptist Convention, eventually the world is going to say, see, look, this is how Christians are supposed to be, and if you hold to a certain sexual worldview, then that means you're behind uh, the, the, the times. You're on the wrong side of history. That's how the world, this is how it's playing out in the church. It's been splitting churches the last several months, in this, particularly this last year. But again, this is not new. Because at the root of all of this, intersectionality is pride. It, it's, it's pride in the sense that, like, if you think pride is like puffing up yourself to see how great you are, intersectionality does the same thing, but it's almost in the reverse in that it's trying to say all these negative things, all these oppressed, all the things that's oppressing you, and you boast about those things. And as Christians, when we see this, this should not be something that's alluring to us. And there's been a lot of pastors and authors, some of these pastors and authors that have books up in my office right now that have bought into this idea. They'll say things like, I have never understand the gospel until I understood critical race theory. Or I'm not gonna, or, or the gospel is incomplete unless you use intersectionality. Essentially, the gospel, the Bible itself is insufficient because it doesn't help us deal with the social justice issue. There are a lot of pastors and even celebrities that are deconstructing the faith because of it. And it, it makes sense, right? If you call yourself, if, you, if you're calling names and saying you're the oppressive class, I don't want to be part of the oppressive class. And then they think Christians are that way, so they want to just renounce it and leave it all together. Again, so this message here, it's, 
is really for me as a pastor to help guard us. I think it is the job of, our, of, of the pastors and elders to teach you guys, to equip you so that you know how to defend the faith or to have a worldview so you can know how to operate in this world. Jude chapter 3, actually sorry, verse chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 3 and 4, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the world that we live in, and as a pastor and shepherd here, I want us to guard ourselves from it, to, have, to understand intersectionality and relative to the Bible. In a lot of ways, this is a biblical critique of intersectionality. Because this, this idea here is unbiblical. But yet, at the same time, this is something that Paul has dealt with before. This is not, although it's new in terms of our age, it's actually not new. There's nothing new under the sun in that sense. The book of Philippians is written by Paul. It was one of the letters that he's written known as the prison epistles. This, this book, or this letter, alongside Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, Paul wrote this when he was in prison. And... He wrote this as a thank you letter to the church. Uh, the, Philipp the Philippian church, these, these people were, were faithful individuals. And they sent Epaphroditus and Timothy as like a missionary, like a short-term ministry trip to visit Paul in prison. And when on the way there, Epaphroditus got sick. And basically that's what at the end of uh, chapter 2 talks about. This journey that Epaphroditus went on almost killed him. And he's writing this thank you letter in return. So it's just sending Epaphroditus back saying, hey, look, he's good. He's fine. He's not... He, has not, he hasn't entered into glory yet. And this is this thank you letter. But in the midst of all this, there's still trouble in the church. There's divisiveness. At the end of chapter 4, they talk about this, these two individuals that have, the, have conflict. But at the same time, there are false teachers in this church as well. Again, this whole thing with intersectionality is not new. And whenever the church dips into the culture too long... They eventually compromise. They compromise and they eventually deny the faith. Again, as I said, this is not new because 60 years ago, they, the church had to deal with this. There was the fundamentalism versus the evangelicalism. This is the uh, fundamentalists. These are people that want to focus on the authority and sufficiency of scripture. And there's the evangelicalism, which is largely people that want to have unity with all of these different Catholics, just call themselves Christians. Like, oh, we're all, we all believe the same thing. Let's have world peace kind of thing. They focus so much more on social issues and cultural movements that the the you know the brand of uh, of Christianity just became it just it's just synonymous with a certain American way of thinking. And there were a group of Christians that said, "No, our main task is not to is not mainly to focus on the things of this world, but to call people to a better kingdom. That is the one that is from the scriptures." We are all citizens of heavens, and we need to remember that we represent Christ and not the things of this world. So, as we walk through this text, I'm just going to kind of, this is more, again, this, more, this message here is more going to have the apologetic feel of it. I'm going to talk about this text, what it, it means, and then, and then compare that to what intersectionality believes. So let's begin. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is not trouble. Is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. It's always funny when Paul says, like, finally, and this is like the middle of the chapter, the middle of the book, like, finally. It's like, well, it's not really finally. Um, actually, even in the original, that's not what it means. In the original, it means so then. Again, this is right after Philippians chapter 2, which talks about this faithfulness of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and even Paul himself pouring out his life as a drink offering for the gospel. He's saying that if that's the case with all of us as Christians, then we as brethren need to rejoice. He calls them my brethren. It's a tender word, a genuine care for those that he's writing to. He commands them to rejoice. This is an imperative. It's a continual act. They're supposed to continually rejoice in the Lord. And this is, it means that this is, is, is a choice of the will. They are supposed to continue to rejoice in him. And Paul writes, to write the same things again is no trouble. This implies that what he said in this entire book, he said it at one point to them in person. It's even possible that he wrote, he wrote some other letter or some sort of note to them saying the same things, but he said, there's no trouble for me. This word write is just inscribed to record, just writing all of this, is, it's not a big deal to him. Paul is in prison and he could write about something else. He could teach a different doctrine, but instead with this church, he chooses to write some right on something that he touched touched on before and that's the role of the pastor right the pastor's role is always to teach you this god's word even if it's a familiar passage and i know most of you know this passage here in this book in particular it's not a trouble for any of us because we want you to guard yourself in god's word that's, a, that's what this end of this verse says that, and it is a safeguard for you it's to guard you for your own good the purpose that we teach, and this is why, the reason why Paul wrote this, is to keep you from stumbling. That's what this word safeguard means. It's to keep you from tripping over the things from the world. It's to keep you from falling. This is to keep you firm in the faith. Verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcisions. This word beware is, is this idea of just look carefully, watch out. So if you were to translate this, watch out for the dogs, watch out for those evil workers, watch out for those false circumcision. He wants them to pay attention to their doctrine and to their, and their life. What are they trying to teach you? How are they living your life, their lives? Watch them. Watch out for these, these Judaizers. These Judaizers, the people that Paul is addressing, these are, these, they're called Judaizers because these were people that are that believe that's okay for you to be a christian they're totally fine with the whole jesus christ dying for your sin thing but what they say that you must have to do is to keep all the old testament laws like and particularly circumcision it's like if you call yourself a christian if you want to be a hundred percent christian then you have to abide by the old testament laws you have to keep that old testament covenant marker and paul says beware of these dogs now when you look at this phrase, I know some of you guys are thinking about the fence on people's houses, beware of the dog. I don't think you realize, but that's actually a biblical term. You know, so next time when you see those verse, we see that phrase, just put down Philippians 3, 2 right next to it, because that is from the Bible, beware of the dogs. When Paul is saying here, beware of the dogs, don't think of the cuddly dogs in our culture, you know, the ones like little chubby ones, the little like very well-groomed type of dogs. Back then, dogs, are like our modern day, like like a walking, like a giant cockroach or a giant rodent. I mean, that's, the, that's how it was described. That's how they were looked at because dogs at the time were known as filth. 
and they, you know, they were always eating with garbage. And of course, it's ironic because these false teachers, although they look holy and clean, they are actually like these dogs in that outwardly they're virtuous, but inwardly they are corrupt. They are essentially people that should not be trusted. They're impure, they're, they're greedy, they're cunning, they're ferocious in their attack. And Paul telling this church to, be, to watch out for these dogs. He calls them evil workers. And what this word means, evil workers, is that they do evil. These people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, claim to be religious, but yet their moral compass is not based on truth. It's not based on God's word. It's based on whatever they want it to be. It's better based on some sort of oral tradition. It's based on some sort of compromise and thinking of the world. And I bring this up because this is exactly how intersectionality and people in the social justice movement are like. They're, uh, they're uh, imposing rules and laws that are subjective. Like, and it changes all the time. The reason why we're in this cancel culture is because they say, okay, you can't say this anymore. You can't do that anymore. And they cancel each other out. And this is happening in the church as well. People are saying, well, you hold to this certain view or you don't hold to this certain view or you don't do certain things. You need to do certain things in order to prove yourself to be genuinely in the faith. Outwardly, they seem very righteous but they're doing things and they're adding things that are not part of God's word. It says here, beware of the false circumcision. In English, in verse 2 and 3, it uses the word false circumcision. And then verse 3 says, we are, for we are the true circumcision. It's weird because in English they translate the same way, but in the Greek it's actually different. The word circumcision in verse 2 is this word called Katatome, which is actually a derogatory term, meaning mutilation. You know, they, these false mutilators, they call, they, they, they're opponents of truth, they're the Judaizers. They claim to be followers of God, but they're making all these laws and rules that are actually not from what Christ expects. These are religious people who hate God, but they claim to be righteous. Look, that's, that's no different from the people in the church now, right? There are so many false teachers in the church that really have disdain for God, and it's very evident in the way that they talk about God, right? This whole social justice movement, like one of the tenets of their, of their thinking is it, it, it pertains to the LGBTQ. They'll say things like this. They'll say, like, well, if you hold to that old sexual ethic, then you, are, you have a problem, not with me, but with my God. You know, they, they claim to be religious people, but they're really not. Again, no difference. Nothing is new in their sun. There's always going to be false teachers that claim to be religious and adding things to God's word. Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. This is this contrast here. True salvation of the, or the true circumcision. Paul is obviously not talking about the, like a physical uh, thing that you do. In fact, the Greek word here is, is, is it's a different word. It basically means a spiritual change. That these individuals, the, 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 the true believers, and Paul himself included, are the true circumcision. They truly belong to the one true God. It says that we who worship in the spirit of God. This is an ongoing worship, and, and it says here, and glory in Christ Jesus. It's, again, it's, it's ongoing. Now, when we think of glory in Christ Jesus, what do you think that means? When we say, like, do you glorify Jesus in the way that you talk? Well, when we say here in the context, glory in Christ Jesus, it means boasting in Christ. Paul here is saying that he boasts about Jesus. 
and that all Christians, genuine Christians, brag about Christ because of what he's done on the cross for us. And what you brag most about is going to be the thing that you love the most. Again, look at all the things that's going on with this social justice movement and, and the intersectionality. They're boasting about all of these different things. And there are some Christians that buy into it and they're not boasting about Jesus Christ. They care more about their background. They care more about their social standing within the context of the culture. But they are not boasting about Jesus. So what do you love most? Because that's what you will brag most about. It's essentially another way of saying it. What you brag most about is what you glorify in the most. Do you glory in Christ or do you glory in your job? Do you glory in your status? Do you glorify in your ethnicity? Whatever it may be, what you glorify most is what you love the most. Look at Paul writes, and put no confidence in the flesh. This idea of confidence in the flesh is some sort of human ability that's outside of dependence on the Lord. Do you find yourself having confidence in your own flesh about what you can do or what you're able to do or, or, or you know, your talents or, or just what you look like? Paul here tells us to not put any confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has, um, has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So at this point, Paul here is almost like, challenging the Judaizers. He's talking them, talking to them directly. Back then when they read this letter, it was just like kind of like this. It's just reading the letter out loud. And then there were probably some people there that are that hold that are Judaizers listening to this. And he's like, oh, this is a challenge here. Paul's in prison. He's challenging them. He says here that he put that if there's anyone that put confidence in the flesh, it would be him. Paul here is going to show that when relative these guys, these Judaizers and relative Paul, they have nothing to they have nothing to compare. Paul is going to be the one that's going to like dwarf them in terms of how quote unquote godly they are or spiritual. Of all the people, Paul can boast. No one comes close to the worldly success or the status when it comes to Judaism. There was no one that can is not in the same caliber as Paul. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in flesh, I far more. Again, this is his challenge. Paul's writing this, he's going to show you this list. And in that, he's going to prove to you that these things, that he can surpass all of those things. And he's going to make this, it's intentional because he's going to make this contrast saying that these things are worthless. Paul can match the Jews and he even surpass them when it comes to boasting. Paul's credentials here are far more and even greater than the Judaizers here. You know, like, you know, those military guys that have like those little pins, you know, I'm talking about like. Or maybe for some of you, you guys were in Boy Scout or Girl Scout, you guys have the little satchel thing with the little pit, like the, what do you call it, pins, I guess? Those little pins, the little sort of, whatever those things are. I was not, obviously not in Boy Scouts or Eagle Scout, whatever you call it. They don't even exist anymore because of cancel culture. But anyways, it's like that. Like, if you, you have those things to show off what you've accomplished in life. Like, I've sold so many cookies, and, or I, I knew how to start a fire in the woods, you know, whatever it may be. That's, that's what's going on here. Paul's going to show off his badges. Well, that's what they are, badges. They're going to show off his badges to these, uh, to these Judaizers. Now, when he goes through this list, in these two, few verses, the first, there are seven different attributes that he's going to highlight. First of four are things that he inherited, things that he's just born into. He has no control over whatsoever. But the last three are these personal achievements, things that he's able to do on his own. So let's look at this list. Philippians 
chapter 3, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. He begins with this one because this is what the Judaizers highlighted the most. They talk about why you need to be circumcised. Now, he said here, Paul writes here that he circumcised on the eighth day. And that's very important because this is actually what the Jews are supposed to do. Some of the Judaizers here were not circumcised on the eighth day. They were probably, some might be Gentiles, some might be Jews that were, that eventually believed in Judaism. So they might be older. And then they have the uh, circumcision later on. In other words, Paul saying, I am not a newcomer. I, I'm not a latecomer. I was here, I, I did this circumcision thing on the eighth day. In fact, there were even Ishmaelites back in Genesis 17 that they only did circumcision when they were 13 years old. So Paul is part of uh, the family that essentially, essentially what he's trying to put it here is that even my parents were faithful. I was born into this. My parents were faithful in circumcising me on the eighth day. Some Judaizers came later, but Paul here on the eighth day when he was born, this is, he, he, had, he already had that covenant marker. He says in the next one, of the nation of Israel. This is, he's born, again, born into this family. Um, it's almost like saying that God has put me in this family. I am born this way. It's not just national here. It's actually more of a racial. Like he's talking about his ethnicity. He's saying that his, he is, he, he's ethnically Jewish. He's not a mix of anything. That's why the next one is of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. He highlights this in Romans 11 as well, where he just basically uh, is saying that he's from this particular bloodline. You know, those 12 tribes of Israel. He can actually trace his lineage back, which is super rare back then. There may be a handful of people that can say, oh, I am of this line, or I am of that line. And if you know your lineage, that is an amazing thing. And Paul was able to do so. He's able, he has the credential to prove that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is actually where the first king of Israel is from, the king Saul. That's where, that's where Paul's name before his conversion was. It's a very rare thing. And some of these, Judea, <coughs> excuse me, some of these Judaizers did not know where they're from. I had friends and seminaries that claimed to be like from the tribe of Levi, but there's no way that they know. It's just, oh, my grandmother told me, and that must be it. It's like, no, you have to have to show me the records here. And I guess if you can use a, I guess you could swab your saliva and send it somewhere, and then they can, you know, trace you back. But at this seminary, it was super poor, so I doubt he did that. But he claims he's from the tribe of Levi. And here, in, the, in that context, knowing where you're from makes you very unique and is a standout. He called himself here a Hebrew of Hebrews. He lived and spoke like the Jewish of old. He was culturally Jewish. He kept the tradition, and maybe another way to translate this or think about this is he's the purest of the pure. Right? Like, you know, like when you think about puppies, sometimes there's like, like mixed breeds. Yeah, yeah, Paul is not a mixed breed. He is Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a purebred Jewish person. And as to all a Pharisee, he, this is... You know, he was trained by Gamaliel. This is a guy that was the best teacher at the time. It would be like if, if you were a swimmer and you were trained by Michael Phelps. You know, you have, you know someone that has, you know, gold medals and have the credentials to teach you all there is to know about swimming or whatever the top tier thing is or learn how to play basketball by, by Jordan or coached by LeBron or whatever. You know, you are someone that's been taught by the best and Paul is that. He was taught by the best. He was a Pharisee. Pharisee was, it just means that he was a separated one. He had the oral traditions and he had the Old Testament scriptures memorized. 
account, it was sad about the Pharisees that they started out in good terms. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the, you remember that Ezra uh, created a school of, of teachers, and those teachers will eventually become the Pharisees. They had noble intentions. They wanted to be separated from the world. They wanted to memorize scripture. But over time, they became corrupted and used their abilities and, and even oral traditions to, to oppress those that, are, you know, that don't know the law as well. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what Paul was. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is unique because there were times, even back then in Jewish times, that the Jews would want to proselytize Gentiles. They'll say, you need to worship Yahweh. You need to keep these Old Testament laws. Paul did not go there. He did not want to proselytize people. He wanted to persecute people, particularly those in the church. You know, the proselytizers, like there are people that maybe were maybe Christian that were drawn into the Old, Old Testament laws, but Paul was not satisfied with that. He wanted to kill Christians. He was so good at what he was doing that in the book of Galatians, is revealed that it took him years before the church actually believed that he was genuinely saved. They don't know if he was just pretending to be a Christian so that they could infiltrate their ranks and then backstab them. It's it took years for them to, for them to finally meet the apostles. And that all his learnings was not from them, but that it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit awakened him, and then he was taught by uniquely by our Lord Jesus Christ. But before that, he was a persecutor. It was a remarkable degree of devotion. He was devoted to Judaism far more than any of his contemporaries. It says here, as to the righteous, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul uses this. Paul was like the model Jew in every sense. He had everything that you would want. He's the best of the best in terms of, of, of Judaism. There was no one quite like him. Paul is saying that he can surpass all of these Judaizers, that no demand of the laws that he did not keep, there was no oral tradition that he didn't uphold. He was extremely devoted to Judaism. But look at his contrast. Even in light of all of these accolades, he writes in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things, I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. All of the things that he has, all the comforts, all the luxury, all the success that he's obtained because of his role in Judaism, he sees all of these things as, as not giving him any advantage. Because that's what this word gain here is, like profits. Whatever gains he gets from those things, he sees that as loss. Whatever social acceptance, whatever privilege and prestige he's got, he said these things doesn't matter anymore. Because of what? It's not because of other worldly ideas, but because he sees all these things as lost because of Jesus Christ. This word counted here, it's in the perfect tense. And we don't have that in English. Perfect tense is something that has happened in the past with ongoing effects. How I would describe this all uh, oftentimes is that if you're stuck in traffic, you know, it's something that happened in the past and it has ongoing effects to you in the present. Obviously, I'm not stuck in traffic forever, so this illustration breaks down a little bit. But it's that idea that something happened in the past that has ongoing effects now. And he, the moment he became a believer, he counted all of those things as lost for the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Now, is this you? The moment that you became a believer, do you find in yourself that all of the things that you acquired in life, 
all things that you are, all things that you're born with, you see those things as loss compared to Jesus Christ. He, his perspective drastically changed the moment he became a believer. It is now considered a loss. All that he did, all that he's known for, these things are a disadvantage to him. He sees these things as a loss. It's both morally and spiritually, he sees everything as a loss. They're just not, and it's not even like these things were unimportant or, in he, or he's somehow indifferent. He sees these things as harmful. And again, this, this is radically different from the way the world thinks about their life. Right, the intersection wants you to boast about certain things about yourself. They want, they want you to talk about how your skin color is a certain way, so therefore you boast about these things, or, or you're from this line, or you're not from America. Boast about these things. These things should be considered as lost, accounted as lost for the sake of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus for whom I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Look at how he said, more than that, I count them as all things, not just some things, but all things as loss in the view of the surpassing. This just, Jesus cannot be matched. He, there's no equal of knowing Christ. This is this intimate personal relationship that he has Jesus, that he, he cherishes that so much that in relative to anything else, he describes it as rubbish. This word rubbish here is exactly what you think it means. It's poop. Pluvalon is the Greek word. It means waste. It's, it's done. And, 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 you know, as a parent, I, don't, I think most of you are not parents, so you, don't, you might not think of poop too much. But as a parent, I see it all the time. I changed a diaper not too long ago, and it had scubalon in it. You know what happens if I choose not to change my son's poopy diaper? He'll get a rash. And if I let that poopy diaper stay with that rash, eventually it will infect him. And if I just keep neglecting it and letting him go about his day with that poopy diaper and years and, or maybe days and weeks without, eventually he'll get sick and he probably will die from it because he'll die in his pillow. This is how Paul views all the things that he's accomplished in life. All the things, he, he sees all of these things as, as rubbish, his, his, his ethnicity, his, his success, all his religious activity, he sees all of these things as rubbish because they are useless when compared to Jesus Christ. He has no regrets. And look, he's saying that these things, he, there's nothing to gain in these things. Rather, he gains Christ. He never got over knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He, 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 the moment he got saved, he never got over the fact that he was redeemed by the living Savior. And you know, I think this is probably the reason why so many Christians are buying into this worldview, why so many Christians are just so drawn to intersectionality and critical race theory and all these things. Why the modern church loves these things is because they don't care about Christ as much anymore. Knowing Christ is boring to them. Diving into God's word, living and knowing God and living a holy life is no longer appealing. Telling people about Jesus, how salvation can only come through the, through the cross of Jesus Christ and by faith alone through grace, these things are not enough anymore. This is why people buy into the, these things, because they don't desire Christ the way that they once did. Paul, in relative, the moment he became a believer, never got over the fact that Jesus would love such a sinner like him. 
verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We wanted to be found in Jesus, not possessing some sort of self-righteousness from the law here, because he understands that he has nothing to bring to the Lord. You know, if you've ever gone to certain restaurants, there are certain restaurants that actually have dress code. Everybody goes, and sometimes like dress code are strictly enforced. I've been to, I've seen, I've been to and been seen restaurants where you're not allowed to wear sandals here. You're not allowed to wear, uh, you, know, you have to have your shirt tucked in. There's like certain places that you have to dress you know, nicely. If you don't, they're not gonna let you in. And yet that's the same way when it comes to our salvation. We have nothing to put on. I mean, the thing that we have naturally is, is this filthy garments. We are clothed in our sin. Our works are nothing but filthy rags. The only way that we can be, the only way we can have a new garment so that we can enter into heaven is only by faith when Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. As white as snow. That's, that's because it's, it's, it's perfect. Christ gives us his perfectness and we give him our filthy rags when we put, place our faith in him. We're no longer clothed in the things of the law or things that we've accomplished. Rather, we're clothed in Jesus Christ. It is by faith, that's what I said here, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Only God can give you that righteousness. Your sins are washed away because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The danger when you see things like where we're at now with cancel culture is that it's, not, it's a very unforgiving thought. Right, you did something 20 years ago and they're going to bring it back up and they're going to try to end your career or whatever. That these things are so antithetical to the gospel. The gospel tells us that the moment we place our faith in him, every single sin is washed away. Christ, the God of the universe, does not hold it against us. This is why this worldview is so dangerous because it is its own religion. It operates off its own way of salvation. You have to keep working and trying to do all of these social things. You have to put certain things on social media. You have to give to certain organizations. And it's never enough. It's all these works that you have to do just so that you can gain the approval of the world. Paul's saying, like, no, there's none of that. It's only faith in Christ. That, that's the only way for you to have a right relationship with God. And in that right relationship with God, that's how you would love other people. The Christians already have the answer to the social justice issue. It's love God and love your neighbor. You love them the way that Christ loves them. You're gracious, you're kind, you're forgiving. You do good works, you care about people. You must let your light be shine and made known to the world. Do good works, that's fine. But it's, it's not because you think of yourself as self-righteous. Rather, you love other people because you understand how much God loves you. This whole social justice thing is causing people to add so much work that people can't even keep up anymore. And yet they're still burdened by it. It says here that it comes on the basis of faith. You know, Paul knew who Jesus Christ was before he came to saving faith. He has to, right? Like, how would you be? There's no way you can be such a good Christian killer if you don't know what they believe. He knows what they believe, but at some point, when he got saved, he, he, he just devoted his whole life to the Lord. So it's not an intellectual exercise, but it's trusting in the knowledge of God. It's given 
your life you give to Christ. Your life belongs to Christ, not the culture. God is not pleased with anything that you could accomplish in this life, especially if it robs him of his glory. And that's what this is, right? Intersectionality is always focusing yourself, it's not even uh, focusing on things that matter most, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteous works means nothing to God. Your good works won't make you righteous before the Lord. Why is that? Because the world's morality is going to change. What's once right now is going to be different later. I mean, we can't keep up with that because we don't need to. Our identity is in Christ. The scripture has all that we need to live a life of godliness, to be a good testimony to the world. Everything that we need in terms of thinking and how we live is, in, is found in scripture. And if we love Jesus Christ, if we love the God of the Bible, then we know him more and then we live according to truth. So why is this such a big threat to the church? I have two kind of ending points. Why is this such a big threat to the church? And this is something that I've already mentioned. Because the world wants you to deny your chief identity. The world wants you to deny your chief identity. And that is in Christ. The, Lord doesn't, the world doesn't want you to boast about Jesus Christ. The, Lord, the world wants you to boast about anything else but Jesus Christ. You know how there's that new Marvel movie where there's like the Asian guy, I think that's coming in a few months. Like I remember just seeing on social media how like, all oh, right, Asians, we like, it's our time. And like, does it really matter? And it's like, I, I get that the world may think a certain way and desire a certain thing, but Christians, like we see that like objectively, even if we're Asians and we see like an Asian superhero, who we really are is never going to be put on screen. Like, our chief identity is not our ethnicity. Our chief identity is in Jesus Christ. That will never uh, be vogue. Being a follower of Jesus Christ will never be cool. And you have to accept that because the world doesn't. The world wants you to deny your chief identity in Christ Jesus. We'll actually get to our next point. Not only does the world want you to deny your chief identity, but the world wants you to ultimately deny your faith. I mentioned earlier that the whole critical race theory, they have things like near nationality, right? So if you're not a foreign, if you're not born in America, you're a part of the oppressive class. Or if you're a male, then you are an oppressor. And if you are, you know, different ethnicity, then you're oppressed or whatever. One of the things that they're actually going to use now is your faith. They're going to say, oh, you're a Christian. Therefore, you're naturally on the oppressive side. Oh, you're, you're a Muslim? Okay, that means you're the one that's oppressed. You're Mormon? Okay, you might be in the middle somewhere. But if you are a Christian and you want to be on the right side of history, you need to check your privilege. Because that's how they say it now. And what they're essentially telling you is to deny Jesus Christ. This is why so many people now are deconstructing the faith. They're confronted with this reality, like, and it's very subtle and tactful by the devil. Because the devil is not saying, hey, if you don't, hey, if you don't uh, it's not like he's going to put a gun in your head and say, hey, I'm going to kill you if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. If you, don't deny Jesus. What he's doing is just social currency. You wanna be accepted by the world? You wanna be liked by the world? Check your privilege. Deny Jesus and you can get back into the right side of history. But as a Christian, you must not let Jesus go because Jesus is far greater than anything that you have in this life, whether it is your skin color or things that you acquire in this life. Jesus Christ is so much better than that. All the things that you've attained in this world is rubbish compared to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is truly valuable? Because trust me, 
it won't be long before they ask you that question. Are you a Christian? And if so, they're going to treat you differently. It's already going on in the workplace. You know, people are saying, hey, you can't call me by that pronoun. What, what are you? Why do you hold to that view? And naturally, they're going to draw to the fact that, oh, because you're a Christian. And that may mean that some of you will never advance in certain places in society. And are you content with that? Are you thankful to the Lord that you have him and, and you're willing to lose everything because you have Christ Jesus? That all the things in the world doesn't matter because Christ is yours. And if, and if you know that, you also understand that you belong to him as well. And that's something that it just transcends this life and goes on to eternity. This is why it's just such a threat in the church. Because it attacks, it, it, it's, it's intent, it's hope that you deny your chief identity and ultimately it's, it's, it's designed so you can deny your faith. And as a pastor, my hope is that you, do, that you hold fast to the faith. That you're bold in Jesus Christ. That you boast about Christ. That you don't boast about anything else about Jesus Christ. I, again, I've seen this in the world, seeing even in the Christian church, people bragging about certain things about them that is just so trivial and vain. That you need to be like Paul here and brag and boast in Christ Jesus and in him alone. Let us pray. Lord God, we are so easily deceived when it comes to things of the world. It is so tempting to be wanted and accepted and to live comfortably here. Reminded of you, what we have in you, is that because of your atoning work in our life, that we are citizens of a greater kingdom, that our identity is not of this world. Whatever we have, whatever we are born with, whatever we are able to achieve, these things are all rubbish and relative to you. Lord, I hope that you become more real to us in our hearts that we don't waver in our faith, that we don't get nervous when the persecution comes, but, know that, but remind us that this is just a natural progression of the world, that they will hate us because they hate you. Draw our hearts closer to you each day. May we be faithful in a time where it's so easy to deny the faith. Thank you for this time that we have in your son's precious name. few words of announcement. July 31st, we're, we're, we have our, our summer children outreach. Um, if that's something that you're interested in, that we're trying to minister to kids pre-K to 10-year-olds, um, we still need volunteers. We have, a, we have a good group of people, but there's bound to more kids that, are, um, that, that might want to join. And if you actually know anyone that friends that have kids that, um, would, that you would like to invite to this, totally go for it. You know, invite them so that we know so we can you know, make the contact list and everything like that. Um, and the hope is that we minister to these little ones and share the gospel with them. It's going to have these little fun activities um, just so that we can, you know, hopefully uh, share the gospel and that they can come to saving faith. Uh, this one I'm excited by as well. Uh, July 2nd is a Friday before that, um, or, or July 2nd. We're actually going to have a little Q&A with Bill and Kathy. Um, we're going to have it here. I think we're going to sit probably up here and maybe we'll put a shield around Bill or something or whatever it might be. We'll figure that out. But if you have any questions for them, 
send them to me, or maybe the admins guys can set that up. Ask whatever questions you like. You can try to stump them if you like. I'm going to try to you know, ask some questions. And the reason is mainly for us to get to know our elders, um, or build their elder. Kathy is you know, his helper. Uh, but you know, I always cherish the um, people that, the saints that have gone, that lived life longer, have been in the faith longer. Uh, these, it's because you can learn so much from them. And what's a grim reality is that all elders and all pastors eventually will have to enter into glory. So until then, learn as much as you can from them. Glean all the wisdom that you can. Uh, so, you know, ask whatever questions you like, whether it's like practical life questions or, or just, you know, pr their perspective on things. Uh, it's going to be fun, I think, because I have some questions of my own, and I, I don't want to just ask all my own selfish questions. I want to see what, you know, I'm sure you guys have questions that you want to learn from them. So send in your questions. Um, and I guess the next announcement will be what's next on this little preaching series. Uh, next week, I'm going to talk about um, not quarreling with one another. I, I, I want to bring this up. This one is actually time because you know, June 15th, that's when next week, that's when we're opening up. And um, in a lot of ways, I'm just thinking a lot about what's been going on last year and even how to move forward. Um, there's going to be a temptation to quarrel about very trivial things. Just seeing so many, even churches in the Bay Area that's been like divided over masks and vaccines and all these different things. And there is a biblical way in which we need to treat each other. And since we're coming back in, I think I, I spoke to Archie earlier. He, he asked me what I want to do. I'm not sure what I want to do yet. I know that we all have to wear masks, but that we could also, I don't think we need to do social distancing, but we'll find out in, on June 15th. But it's possible that you guys can come and you guys can hang out with each other and you guys don't have to. I mean, some of you guys aren't, you know, some of you guys are sitting close, but you guys could, we have more people in the room, basically, but you just have to wear masks. Um, but yeah, I think, but even, it's because of that, I think because of different things that's going on in the world and even within Christendom and the Christians and churches and stuff like that, I want to talk about this topic in James 4 about not fighting against one another and even the reasons why we have conflict with each other. Is not necessarily just with a mask thing or whatever. There's other things as well. And as a pastor, I want us to live in harmony and have unity in Christ. So that's next week. You can look forward to that. And please pray for me during my studies as well. Um, yeah, I have ideas and I have things I want to say, but just continue to pray for me in that way. Okay, feel free to hang out um, as long as you like um, or until, I guess, until we leave, <laughs> until the last person leaves. So I don't think we need to turn the chairs anymore because you guys didn't do te temper checks when you walked in, right? So, right? I wasn't downstairs, so I didn't know. No? Okay, yeah, so things are getting better in that sense. So, yeah, just hang out, fellowship, and have a good evening.